Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to have those. If you would pass them to the aisle, Craig uh, and Kurt will pick them up and we will pray for you this week. We're so glad to have you with us. If you're visiting, uh, we're thankful uh, that you have come to be with us today. No one is justified by works of the law. The reason I was drawn to the Alistair Begg clip earlier was just the, how well it communicated the counterintuitive um, power of the gospel. When you think of the thief on the cross, and I love that aspect of um, the gospels, uh, the crucifixion scene, Matthew records there were two thieves and they were both hurling accusations at him in the early part of the six hours that Jesus was on the cross. Luke, however, records a change in one of them. And as he had been watching Jesus through the the whole horror of that event, uh, he said uh, to Jesus in the writing pane of crucifixion, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. And when I think about that, it flies in the face of everything that we perceive to be normal in this world counterintuitive, different from what you would expect, not agreeing with what seems right or natural. This man on the cross was there for his sins, for his crimes. And Jesus, in that moment of unspeakable pain, gave meaning to his miserable life by saying, today you will be with me in in paradise. And the humanity within us says, wait a minute, hold on. He didn't, he didn't do anything. All he has is brokenness and strife in his life. He, he never went to a Bible study. He never went to synagogue. He never went to the temple as a believer. He never shared his faith with anybody. He never gave anything. And he's in? Surely that can't be right. And that is the wonder and the scandal of the gospel. Because the way we are wired is Romans 3.20, in the sense that by works of the law, we, we believe that we can be justified before God. And I want to bring this up on a regular occasion, this word justification and justified before God, which is mentioned throughout the book of Romans, is a legal term that we need to embrace and understand. It's a legal declaration that in the courtroom of heaven, to be justified with God means you're declared righteous, reconciled, received. Salvation isn't only a legal declaration. That's why we read that we're adopted in Christ. It's a family picture as well. We're received into the beloved. But this is counterintuitive. This world functions based on, merit, based on merit, not grace. The gospel is not at all what we would come up with on our own. We would expect to honor the virtuous, not the rebellious. We would expect to have to clean up our act first before even applying for an audience with the holy God. Philip Yancey mentioned an episode in C.S. Lewis's life 
During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world were discussing whether any one belief was unique to the Christian faith. And the, the debate raged until Lewis entered the room and he says, what's the, the rumpus about? And um, he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And in his forthright manner, uh, Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the confrees had had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. Because if you're going to get an A, it's usually because you studied for it. Because you get a promotion, it's usually because you've worked hard for it. If you're going to get ahead in this world, it's usually by your hard work. And so we take that experience which has its place in the Christian life. We are to labor and toil. We are to, to work hard in the passions God puts on our hearts, but not for the purpose of earning merit with him. Not for the purpose of working for any type of salvation. The moment we seek to contribute to it, we, we, we contaminate it. And so, it's counterintuitive. We never would have given salvation to the thief on the cross, which is one large reason why we're not God. How, how come no one will be saved by good works? That is really a question, isn't it? Romans 3.20 is really the closing verse of a long argument. And maybe... You've been challenged in that way this year. I don't want to come to church and think about arguments. <laughs> I don't want to think about, I don't want to have to think, really. But that's, that's to miss the point of what it means to love God, isn't it? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With your mind. And to think through here this important doctrine that all of humanity has fallen short of God's glory Paul has been proving that the entire human race lies under a just condemnation for wickedness. Every one of us, Jew and Gentile, male and female, we share this in common. It's what it means to be a part of Adam's fallen race, if you pick that up from the song earlier this morning. So, how come no one can be saved by good works? Maybe you're under some hope that that's still the way forward when you think about God and salvation. How come? Well, I think there are a number of reasons um, that I want to spend our time thinking about today. The first is we can't be saved by our works. We can't be justified by our works because without exception, we've rejected God. Oh, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm religious. Paul is very careful, going back to Romans 1, 18, by saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and that we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Jew or Gentile, that is our common testimony. Far from trying to, to please God, which is often the deception in religious service and church people, I would hope and pray that this morning... As we look at Romans 
in this section of chapter 3, verse 20, that you would be released forever if it is in your mind and heart that somehow you would be reconciled with God by your good works. It cannot be done. It is such a deception. And people think if they don't say, look, look at my religious performance. I'm here week in and week out. I don't miss a gathering. Look at my impeccable attendance. Certainly that counts for something. Not in God's record-keeping system in heaven, it doesn't. Look at my sacrificial efforts and time. No one was more entrenched in religious performance and zeal than the Apostle Paul before he was saved on the Damascus Road. In fact, in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For, my, for, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, refuge, a manure pile in order that I may gain Christ. I know what it's like to try to work for your salvation and it leads you high and dry and lost. James Montgomery Boyce in his insightful way, far from pursuing God and trying to please him, which is what most of us mistakenly think we are doing, the entire race is actually trying to get away from God and is resisting him as intensely and thoroughly as possible. Interesting statement in Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Take that in, friends. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. One of the major points of Paul's case is that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And here's one of the most difficult hurdles in receiving this doctrine of depravity, that the truth of the matter uh, we, we have rejected the true and living God for our own way. And here's the objection. Here's the pushback. Even among believers, we have friends, we have relatives, we have neighbors who do great things. I know people who have no interest in Christ, no interest in the church, no interest in ordering their lives along biblical principles and the, and the power of the gospel, who do marvelous things. Pillars in the community. Love their families, love their children, give sacrificially. They're kind and generous. Doesn't that count for something, preacher? Come on. I came across in my reading this week, maybe an illustration that'll help. Imagine a, a sailing ship manned by a crew of pirates. This is a rough crowd. The pirates are on good terms with one another. They work hard at their jobs, pillaging and hurting people. They work hard at that. And are honest among themselves. According to a certain pirate code, they help one another, they even defend one another, another. They, their, their hard work is really hard work. Their kindness to each other really is kindness 
But all of these good actions are also at the same time bad and wrong behavior. Because they are aimed at maintaining themselves in violation of international maritime law. Their good deeds are highly selective. And here's the flaw of human assessments. Their good works, their good deeds are highly selective. They do not help everyone. Only themselves or those like themselves. They actually rob and maim and murder many other people. And even their kindnesses to each other grow out of their rebellion, expressing and actually reinforcing it. Some of you have had that experience. You've been on ball teams and been in the locker room. You've been in the trenches with people and you, you build bonds. I'm still having conversations with friends that, I've, uh, that I played athletics with 40 years later. Some of you were in the service, did time in the service under difficult circumstances and bonds are made in those, in those settings. You've lived in neighborhoods for years and you've developed friendships with with neighbors and they do good things and they, they cover your back and you cover their back. And so this idea of depravity and seeing my neighbor is really wicked just like I am, there's a major pushback on that. That seems to be against our experience. Here's another more modern example, leaving the pirates for a minute. Some years ago, Mario Puzo wrote a book called The Godfather, which later became a movie and a sequel to the movie, and there you go. So the book was about the mafia and the powerful crime families who control much of the illegal gambling and drug abuse and prostitution and other criminal activity in America at that time in other parts of the world. His book and films uh, were based on, on it showed tremendous violence, particularly shocking, is that it seems to exist alongside tenderness in their families. Noble feelings and actions. The mafia dons are often quite kind, to, kind kindly family men. They love their wives and children. They're loyal to each other. They defend each other. In fact, they're ruthless in writing a wrong done to a member of the crime family. They will make a deal that's too good to refuse. But they are still crime-oriented, even among themselves, if they view each other as good. That parallels our situation in respect to mankind's universal rebellion against God. We may do good things, or at least good things as they appear to us, but our good is actually bad because it is designed to maintain our rebellion against the only sovereign God and his laws. And so this all-important argument, which began in chapter 1, verse 18, ends here by saying, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God. So what do we have to do with our human sensitivities there? is we have to bring them in submission to the authority of God's word and how it speaks to these things because this is speaking about how God sees things, not how we see them. A second reason why we can't be justified by the works of the law is that we have flagrantly broken God's law. We've flagrantly broken God's law. There's no one who does good, not, no, not even one. The Jew 
under the Mosaic law and the Gentile under the God-given law written on their hearts, which we have suppressed and turned into idolatry. The Jews proclaim, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't, don't embrace idols. All of these in the Ten Commandments in the law of Moses. Nevertheless, they broke the law they claim they loved. The Gentiles, we have codes of ethics too, depending on culture and society. Most cultures know that they should be good, that murder's wrong, that stealing's wrong. There are laws in place, irrespective of what they think of the Bible. Again, Boyce says, this means that whenever we are offended at another person's actions, as we frequently are, we condemn ourselves before God. (laughs) How? Well, for what we find blameworthy in another, we also do. Which is what he dressed down the Jews for in chapter 2. You say, "Don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't do these other things. The things you're telling other people not to do, you're doing them. And so be reminded of that the next time somebody's rude to you and you're offended by it. Allow that to be like a boomerang coming back to you. You know, I have those tendencies too. And there ought to be a sense of humility in how we respond to the irritations of this world. I'm not saying I have it all nailed down. I'm just saying that's the right way to, to view it. That my heart is prone to wander. The final verdict is that unredeemed mankind has no claim of compliance to God's law and is guilty on all charges. That means you. And that means me. Go back up to chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the law is to be a mouth stopper, not a means by which we commend ourselves to him. Anticipating an objection, Paul responds in verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And under the law, there can be no sentence but death. Commentators note an apparent contradiction in this section in chapter 2 verse 13 for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified that's chapter 2 verse 13 and we may be saying which is it Paul is it chapter 2 verse 13 where we are justified by doing the law or is it in chapter 3 verse 20 which tells us that no one can be Well, both are true. The reality is that no one keeps the law, but if someone did, they would be justified by it. The highlights, this highlights the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and why you should put your hope and trust in him today. Listen, Jesus is not a beggar. He has issued a call from his word that is operative to this moment. Come to me. Do you realize the gospel of Mark begins with a command? Repent and believe the gospel is how his ministry started. So he's not a beggar in this sense. Oh, come on, guys, get in line. He's going to bring everything to an account. And on that day, what will matter most about your life and mine is who will represent me on that day. If it's me, I'm in trouble. But there's an advocate 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who through his blood and righteousness, I have hope on that day, and I have hope this day because of him. He kept the law perfectly. One of the reasons Jesus should be the hero of your life is he kept the law perfectly, which means he's the only one qualified to be your all-sufficient Savior. What we've broken countless times, he kept completely. All that he did pleased the Father. On several occasions in his earthly ministry, heaven opened wide its doors and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And his death was by design, his death was a substitute. It was a death planned before the foundation of the world. It was a predetermined plan of God that brought him to Calvary. The Old Testament predicted it. He would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And he's our only hope as we consider being justified before God. His death was a substitute payment for our transgressions. Oh, I hope you will guard your heart from being cynical. In our generation, I hope you'll guard your heart from being cynical to this message of good news. That it would be your hope. It would be the treasure of your heart. That is why we cannot be justified by the works of the law. We've flagrantly broken God's law, but we have a Savior who's kept every command. And in Him, faith in Him, we have the righteousness of God. Notice with me, thirdly, the way things are. The reason we can't be reconciled by the law or justified by the law is because of the way things are. We, we live in a world that is wicked and broken, of which we are contributors to that. Looking back into chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, there's none that's righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This does not mean that we have done every bad thing possible. What this says is this is, this is the human race of which we are a part and have contributed in some form. The saddest verse in the Bible, in my opinion, is found in Judges. I think it, it's stated four or five times. It's the last book in the book of Judges. And men did what was right in their own eyes. That's the story of humanity in a, in a phrase. Men did what was right in their own eyes. Early in human history, restraints were not in place. And in the days of Noah, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become. Every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. We have so many things in place that make life what it is for us. We have laws in place. We have cultural norms in place. We have government, which is a sphere of God that's in place. I'm not arguing um, that they function under God's authority and sovereignty. I'm just saying these are things that have been 
by God's design, in place to hold things in check. But if they're lifted for just a moment and people start doing what is right in their own eyes, which we see uh, on an ever-increasing basis, it's chaos. God responded in the days of Noah with a flood. Notice in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is an interesting thought to trace through the Bible. And I would just ask us this morning, do we have the fear of the Lord before our eyes? How does that function in a healthy, right way? How does that function in your life and in mine? Well, I think it, it, it comes in this way to where God has so um, moved in our consciences that we, we're aware of what his word says, we're aware of what the consequences are, and we have within us, uh, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? That, mean, that doesn't mean we, we always avoid temptation and sin, but there are things in place our conscience being instructed by the word of God, to have no fear of God before your eyes is a frightening thing. Robert Haldane, an old commentator, mentioned, it is astonishing that men, human beings, while they acknowledge that there is a God, should act without any fear of his displeasure. Yet this is their character. They fear a worm of the dust, a human being. They fear a worm of the dust like themselves, but disregard the Most High. They're more afraid of man than of God, of his anger, his contempt, or ridicule. The fear of man prevents them from doing many things from which they are not restrained by the fear of God. They love not his character, nor not rendering to, to it that that honor which is due. They respect not his authority. Such is the state of human nature while the heart is unchanged. John Newton wrote in his great hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." To fear what? That apart from God's redemption, I'm perishing. Notice with me fourthly. Nothing replaces faith as the means of being justified before God. It's not by works, not by works of righteousness, which we do. And this is established not in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. It was established in the time of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and God reckoned to him, counted him as righteous. In Habakkuk 2, 4, which is quoted also in Romans 1.17. For the just, the righteous shall live by faith. And one of the temptations in trying to be made right with God is we bring in exterior things that may have a place in the, the life of faith, but that becomes the resting point. For the Jew, it was circumcision. We're go- when God established uh, the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, which would be a sign of the covenant, and every... Every Hebrew was, was uh, male was called to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. The Jews took that to an excess and seeing that as a path of external righteousness. And it was serious. Moses faced death apparently in Exodus 4 on the way to Egypt because he had not circumcised his son. 
But we could hold that up in this gathering, in a Christian gathering. Many, many view baptism that way. They're trusting in their baptism. They're trusting in their church membership, which has a place in the Christian life. But these are symbols. They're not unimportant, but they're not the reality. They're commanded, but they don't replace faith, trust, dependence on what God has done through Jesus Christ as the means of being justified. Which leads me, lastly, to a schoolmaster we all need. A schoolmaster we all need. And I get this term from the King James rendering of Galatians 3 where Paul said that the law was our guardian or a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. We're not speaking negatively about the law this morning. We're just saying that it can't save you, that the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor, a a guardian um, to bring you to Christ in order that you might be justified by faith. In Galatians 3, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We no longer need that schoolmaster. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith in him. The law is a mirror by which we're able to see ourselves as truly, as we truly are before God. The law helps us to see. It's a mirror that helps us to see who we really are in the presence of God. It was Goethe, the German the father of the German Enlightenment, who said, only God knows who I am, and may he graciously preserve me from finding out. But if you read the law for very long, it's going to lead you to what? Your sin. You're reading along in the Bible, and you hear, oh, my, I'm not supposed to be doing that. And you're faced with a decision. Who am I going to follow? Who am I going to believe? Who's going to change? Self-discovery is very painful. Self-perception is at the heart of who we are and how we behave. So how do we really find out who we are? There's a recent fascination with tracing out your family tree and going back generations to find out who your ancestors were. I think a lot of that is driven by, you know, where, where am I from? Who, who am I? Well, just know this, that every family tree needs a savior. Every family tree has knots in the wood. All human judgments are skewed, though. We fall short of seeing things as God sees them. Nobody knows what we really are. Under the circumstances, things could lead us to do things that we would never have imagined, apart from the grace of God. One woman I read about this week lived for 14 years and discovered that her, hus- that her husband uh, was dressing like a woman at night and carousing the town. She was devastated. She had no idea that he was living this dual life. People around us may be helpful, but we don't, we don't know them in the, in, in the deepest way. And this isn't a cause to walk around with great suspicion, only to know what reality is. Perhaps you remember the House of Mirrors at the county fair. Or if you went to the haunted house at Disney World, 
You see these house of mirrors, and one mirror makes you look thin and narrow, and we like to hang out there, and then another one makes you look like you weigh 500 pounds. And trying to find out who we really are, gravitating towards those mirrors that make us look good. Other people, other people who, uh, you know, we want to hang around other people who make us look good, confirm uh, our self-esteem as we hear in the culture. Um, but that's not who we really are. Who we really are is who we are before God, for He sees us as we truly are. And we're prone to idols to foster our desire to be important. And we don't want to hear the truth. Erwin Lutzer wrote, When a friend of mine left his wife to live with another woman, he withdrew from his friends at church and formed new friendships and bars and sports complexes. He felt better associating with people who would sanction his adultery and his deceptions. That's, that's the way we're wired. We, why, why would you want to come and sit in a church service that's talking about human depravity? When you can hang around, people are going to tell you how great you are. How wonderful you are. At the end of the day, who we really are is who we are before, before God. John Calvin said, it's not possible to know ourselves until we know God. So the law is a mirror that reveals to us who God is and who we are. The law does not cleanse or change our sinful status. It just declares we're guilty. It's not the soap and water that gets the mud. And in this case, the sin off of who we are. Some moral code that you think is right will not change your heart of stone. You need God's redemption in Jesus Christ. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, I pray that that would lead you to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is through the law that we learn of our sin and need a Savior. Do I need to review them? Just the Ten Commandments anyway. Have no other gods before the Lord God Almighty. No idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet what your neighbor has. Are you like the rich young ruler who when Jesus went through them in that way? Oh, I've kept them all from my youth up. Oh, have you now? Have you really? Is that what you're trusting in? Well, God grades on a curve. No, he doesn't. James says that, uh, that if I, I transgress the law at one point, I'm guilty of the whole law. It's through the law that we learn of our sin and our need for a Savior. Listen to this poem. Under the law... With its tenfold lash, learning, alas, how true, that the more I tried, the sooner I died, while the law cried, you, you, you. Hopelessly still did the battle rage, O wretched man, my cry, and deliverance sought through some penance bought, while my soul cried, I, I, I. 
Then came a day when my struggle ceased, and trembling in every limb, at the foot of a tree where one died for me, I sobbed, him, him, him. That is our hope. The guy on the middle cross said we could be justified, and to him we run. Would you bow with me in prayer? We're going to sing a a song this morning, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. It's an old hymn. As we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, we also believe the scripture speaks of his um, tenderness and his call to us. As his grace overcomes our resistance to him, the gospel call us to repent and to believe and to come. Has Romans 3.20 disrupted your world this morning? Have you come to see that you're in trouble? That your law keeping, your code, your moral code carries no weight in the courtroom of heaven? Has the law of God shown you that you are lacking? Undone. That you stand condemned and need an advocate? The greatest news that you could hear is that God has given his son to fill the breach and the vast chasm between you and him. This marvelous grace is received by faith in Christ. He paid it all. Turn to him now. He will surely receive you and give to you what you could never achieve on your own. Redemption. Forgiveness. Salvation. Eternal life. Lord, I pray that it would be etched in our minds and in our hearts. That we could never please you by our efforts. And so we trust in Christ, and he's the motivation for living our go a godly life. He's the motivation for wanting to walk in obedience, the obedience of faith. So in these closing moments of our service, Lord, would you have your way with us? All we are and hope to be, we commit to you now. May we sing in faith. May we respond in faith to what we've heard in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.